Welcome back to another episode of That's Business. Today's guest, Damon Burton, is the owner of SEO National, which was founded in 2007. In 15 years, he has written a book on SEO, has been featured in Forbes, BuzzFeed, and US Weekly, and has optimized websites for Inc. 5000 companies, NBA teams, and businesses which have been featured on Shark Tank. I'm so excited to have you on this podcast, Damon. I've been a huge admirer of yours on LinkedIn. So starting off, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, thanks for having me, Angela Bucca Gelato. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's so, exactly it, right? <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll leave it there and, and let the guests just be like, what the hell? Uh, so yeah, no, for real, thanks for having me. So a little bit about myself. Um, you touched on a few of those things. Owned an SEO agency for 15 years. Also married 15 years. Have three kids. Uh, stayed in my lane of SEO and found a lot of success and just sticking to that. And most importantly, I have a beard. <laughs> and it's a part of your branding. For those that do not know Damon, his whole background, a lot of his brand has his, uh, what is it called? Like a shadow of uh, your face outline. with the beard, yeah. the outline. Yes. It's a huge yeah. part of the brand. I love that. Yeah. That's so funny. Did you always have a beard? No, this beard thing's like two and a half years old. So <laughs> well, we can we can go into that. Okay, we'll just we'll just do the story now. So what had happened is I used to do just the beard, but you know you can't tell, but it's a, a lot worse in person. So it's <laughs> a lot more it's a lot more patchy, and so it looked like I just had a bunch of pubes glued to my face, and so I was like, this doesn't look very good. So I just keep it kind of short. Yeah, but I wouldn't do the mustache. And then what happened was one day I. I don't know if it was like a week of being lazy or something, but the rest kind of grew in. Oh. And somebody commented that it looked good. And I thought that was super bizarre. And then it was like a day or two later of my continued laziness, somebody else commented. And I'm like, what is going on here? And so then I was like, maybe I should see where this goes and just kept growing it. Might as well. And then I just kept having more people comment on it because Zoom is very gracious and filters things and fills it in <laughs> and looks a little bit better. But then I realized what the difference was is I now had a mustache. Oh, that was the key to it. That was mm -hmm. it. So my mustache is beautiful. It is. It's very much thicker than the beard. And so it <laughs> compensates. So I just stuck to it. So then I had my designers. I said, hey, let's make a logo out of this. And I, I had the idea of the face. And so I'll try to visualize this for the listeners. So the name Damon Burton, the A in Damon and the U in Burton align. And so the A makes the top of the head and then the U makes the beard. So I had the concept, I sent it to two of my designers and one of them came back with nailed the idea, but the face sucked. And the other, the concept was off, but the face was great. So I said, can you blend those two? And we more or less nailed it first try and I slapped it up and now I'm stuck with a beard for the rest of my life. So you can never shave it ever. Can't, yeah. Or you'd have to change your whole logo. I think my kids would be terrified. They're young enough. My oldest is 11. Mm -hmm. uh, so he might not care, but my two that are younger than him probably won't know who I am. I live for those videos like on TikTok and other socials of parents like like the baby babies or toddlers. and Reactions. Yeah, the reactions. They're screaming and crying and angry like, who is this stranger? So if you do that, you have to take a video. I do and I will. <laughs> <laughs> I will sacrifice my children yes. for the benefit of shaving my face. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's amazing. So I want to get into because you've been in this business from, since 2007. This whole SEO thing, I feel like has blown up, especially in the last few years. But A, what did you do previously to owning your own company? And B, how did you get into it? 
my last jobs immediately before I started my agency was in web design. So I, I was in a very niche industry of affiliate marketing design. So I worked with a lot of successful gentlemen, primarily the last two people I worked with were super successful, but those are like whole other stories in their own, you know, success doesn't mean they were good people. Right. And so I, I learned a lot about how not to treat your wife from one of them <gasps> and how not to treat your company from the other one you know, your team and your employees, which is great because I feel like over time, I've never had a mentor and that's not to say anything bad about mentors. It's just never been my thing. Um, but I've learned a lot more from what I see other people do wrong than I've learned from what people do right. And so that's helped me have a super loyal team. I mean, in the 15 years, I just had my first person in 15 years move on. I saw that. I've never had anybody quit prior to that. Wow. So, you know, it's helped me build a super loyal team. Um, and then there's like this whole other story we talk about um, how they're all remote. And until recently, I've never met any of them. And I'd put their loyalty up against anybody. So my background was originally in design. And we could actually go a little bit deeper than that because the way I got into design was in my early 20s, I was a big car enthusiast. And so I had started... Um, a website called EliteRides.com. There's nothing there right now. I, I still own the domain, but just kind of archived everything. And I was big into like, if you think like Fast and Furious kind of thing, like that's the easiest yes. way to cringily right. explain what it is. <laughs> um, but what was interesting is, so I would drive down, I, I would print these little flyers that were basically car bios. And so anytime I'd see like one of those cars, I would like fanatically wave at them and say, hey, pull over. And, and then surprisingly, a lot of people would pull over for a complete stranger. <laughs> and I'd say, hey, I have this website and I feature cars. Can I take a couple quick pictures and you know, you can tell me what you got going on in your car and then I'll build a page about it. So I'd manually build these pages that would feature like these Honda Civics and things like that. And then a couple months later, unbeknown to anybody, Fast and Furious came out. So then that increased the exposure even more. And then I built up this community of thousands of people. And so then where this transitions into design and marketing is then I started going, well, how do I make this better? And that's when I started to learn design more intentionally. And then as it continued to grow, I said, how do I monetize this? And then that's how I started to learn about marketing. And then from there, I built some little um, you know, project sites. If you read my book or anything, there's a little story about how I outranked ABC's The Bachelor. And I just did this in an, uh, like a 90-minute website build after my wife was watching the finale of an episode of a season and she reeled me in and said, come watch this with me. And I, I was thinking, well, what had happened, I think it was 2006, there was a gentleman named Andy Baldwin and he was announced as the next Bachelor. And why that was weird or significant to the story is because prior to that, they, at least as, as much as I remember, they didn't tell you who the next Bachelor was. So I was like, hey, season's over, come back in, because they do two seasons per year. So it's like, come back in a, you know two, three months and we'll tell you who the new guy is. But this time they're like, hey, the new guy is this guy. And so that piqued my curiosity, not because of who he is, but the marketing reason why they did that. So I started looking at this guy and I couldn't really find anything. And then I kind of had this light bulb moment where, where I thought, well, if I'm looking and this isn't really my thing, just imagine how many other people are actually looking. For sure. And so I told my wife, I said, I'm going to be in here for an hour or two, build a website. And so what I did is I just cataloged any public information I could find. I created a gallery that had any of his big, hunky, sexy, topless pictures for all, all the fans. And I put him in a little gallery. And within a week, I was outranking ABC. And then I put ads on there and you know, did whatever SEO that I knew of at the time. Right. So the, the summary of the value in that from a marketing perspective of that story is the reason why that website works so well is because I solved the problem. 
there was a need for people to, a demand for people to want to find out more about this guy. And so I created a website. So that was really a good opportunity for me to go, well, well can I do this in other things? And so um, maybe one, one last story on this topic I'll share is another one was being into cars. There's this big car convention that's the first week of November every year. And it's called SEMA Show and it's down in Vegas. And it's massive. It's like a four-day event. It takes up the entire Las Vegas Convention Center, which is 50 gazillion square feet. And so, when I went there, it's by invite or application only. So, you have to be in the automotive industry somehow. And so, via Elite Rides, I was able to get access. So, I took a bunch of pictures. It was a mind-blowing thing. And so, I come home and, of course, I want to learn more. Right. Same thing. I get online and I can't find hardly anything. I find like a couple other fan sites. They're all garbage. So I said, well, why can't I be this site? Because now this is like a year after the Bachelor thing. So now I know a little bit more. And so I said, I wonder if I can do this again. And so I built out a gallery site. And the first year I went ahead, maybe 300 pictures. But then the next year, knowing that I was going to do something with this, I took way more. So I had like 1,500 pictures. And then after that year, you know, I optimized it that year. And my website outranked this multi-million dollar company. And I think I think the company that runs it is like an, another billion dollar company that actually owns that and other conventions. So then I continued building it out, building it out over the years. I went from, you know, 300 pitchers to 1500 pitchers to three to 5,000 pitchers every year and ran that until I got a cease and desist. And uh, <laughs> oh, I'm just, that's, I was waiting for that. Yeah. That's, that's the end of that story. <laughs> <laughs> I had read this somewhere, either it was in your book or on your LinkedIn, or I don't remember where I read this, but you had said, or maybe on one of your videos, but you had pretty much self-taught and you were very much someone that you do not overcommit to things or like set super high expectations and you're very realistic with all your clients. So you taught yourself all of this of how you got into it. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. Identifying that need and just like executing on it and how to, I mean, obviously time and effort takes precedent there, but what else kind of helped you and stay rigorous with training yourself and getting, for lack of a better term, like kicking ass at what you do now? Uh, probably being intentional about like at, at the very beginning, I said I stay in my lane and I committed to staying in my lane. Now, there was a little bit of flexibility in the first couple of years because when you're an entrepreneur in the beginning, you know, you got to put food on the table and you're learning things. And so I started in design, but I can tell you where I transitioned into SEO. But during kind of that transition, I was like, sure, I'll do your PPC too. You know, I'll do whatever. Anything that's marketing related, why not? And so for the first year or two, um, it was just me. I was self-employed. And so it was cool just to do your own thing. Um, so what had happened was I had a client who's still a client today, 15 years later. Wow. Um, I probably have my first five for sure, maybe 10, if I went and looked back at our client list of our clients from the first year or two are still with us, which is unheard of in any business, but especially in internet marketing. So this first client, I was doing design and PPC and they said, well, what do you know about Google? You know, the organic kind of thing. And I said, well, I know enough that I think I can help you, but I don't know enough that I feel comfortable charging you, but I also don't want to work for free. So what I did is I negotiated kind of some benchmarks and I said, how about we do this? I will work for free if and until I hit these goals. And then if we hit them, not only will you pay me retroactively for the time I did put into it, we will also start a retainer moving forward. So then they had nothing to lose. And I was incentivized to not lose myself. And so fast forward, I think we set a three-month goal. And if I remember right, it was about six weeks we hit it. Wow. So that started up pretty quickly. So I thought I enjoyed that process. So then I took it to our second client who we still have, who was introduced from the first client. And so then it was easy to go, hey, we just did this for these guys. Can we try it with you guys? 
And they said, yes, same thing. It worked. And, and that was the moment where I said, I enjoy this process. I'm going to do SEO. At this point, it was just me still. And I still had a couple of PBC accounts. So I still did that. But over time, I phased it out. I stopped taking on new ones. And the ones that were complicated or I couldn't deliver at an expertise level that I wanted to protect my, my reputation, then I phased those out. So it's always like value driven. It's like, okay, with the PPC, if I felt like I could deliver a return while also transparently telling them I'm not the best, right. but I feel like I can get you a return on the little bit you are paying me, then I kept those accounts going. But other than that, we just, wow. I just moved everything out. And so then that's when being intentional about SEO kind of kicked in and you know, depending on where this conversation goes, we can walk through the evolution of the agency, but that's kind of the abbreviated answer. That's amazing. The non-abbreviated. Non-abbreviated. <laughs> we don't like abbreviated answers on this podcast. We like we like life stories, so this is great. Now, touching on the fact that you just had your first employee quit after 15 years, and you are not the traditional business owner, and I feel like you and I are a lot alike. I know we're not the best of friends just yet, but we're going to be. But <laughs> I like it. I love it, right? You just moved but, up one notch already. Yes, perfect. But what goes into that? I mean, I'm sure you could tell your horror stories of, like you said, your previous bosses and what not to do. But how is that transition into being a business owner and how you treat your employees? Yeah. And everything I do, I'm hyper intentional. Mm -hmm. And so there's nothing that's an accident in anything that we do or accomplish. Why don't I kind of start in reverse? Of course. The woman on my team, um, she's a copywriter. She just left for a new opportunity. The reason why I'm not surprised with her in particular, though, is um, she was great at what she did, but it was kind of just like a fill-in opportunity. She was part-time. So she's just trying to figure out what she's doing, right? And, and that's fine. So, you know, with the rest of the team, they came in on a little bit different paths where it's, you know, they, they were looking for long-term opportunities. So I kind of think I should not count her as quitting and I should still keep my record clean. I agree. I support that. So even her though, actually, we'll, we'll keep going on her though. She sent me a huge thank you. Um, the moment that our lead copywriter told me that she was leaving, the first thing I did was get on, and she's in freaking New Zealand. So you want to try and figure out like how to deliver a door gift? <laughs> Time zones. No, like how do you deliver a personal gift to her front door in a place that you have no idea, like the geography of anything? So the first thing I did when I heard she was leaving, before I even sent her an email was order her a gift. And I sent her this huge gift basket. And not just like a cliche thing. Anytime I give a gift, I, I hate swag, like largely. There's some exceptions. But I hate just like fill in crap and just like, meh, you know, here's your gift certificate kind of thing. Agreed. And so I was like, what do I find that has a more human touch to it? And so I found her this um, this gift basket in this local place that has this local stuff. And surprisingly, she got it like the next day. It was super fast. Because she sent me an email of gratitude saying, you know, I've, I never expected to have the send off. You know, everything you've done is with gratitude. My kids are digging into this right now and they say their thanks too. And so I do that with any opportunity I can. I just was calculating this actually in the last couple of days. I spend, I would guess, upwards of $100 a day on gifting other people. Wow. And so what happens is when I see something on Facebook. I always have my antenna up for like what's going on. Um, one example is there was a gentleman that I met in a mastermind and he had told me how him and his wife are getting baptized. So the first thing I did was look up a gift that would get delivered the day after he got baptized. It says, congratulations. I'm not religious, but it was something that was special for him. Right. And so 
I look for these opportunities that mean something to other people. So that guy wasn't a client. Now he is. And I didn't send that. Like, like, here's the thing. Like, I am genuinely out to just support other people. I just want people to be happy. Like, I'm so sick of people not being happy. It's so true. Yes. So I look for these opportunities to just make other people happy. But then what happens is it solidifies relationships and then your rewards can be infinite beyond that. So I do it selflessly, but then ironically, you're rewarded, right? So that same concept applies to the team. I have some structured approaches to it. And then I have other times where just the antennas up kind of thing. So when when the team joins, I'll jump on and say, let's do a, a one-on-one kind of thing. And you know, the rest of my team is now hiring and boarding new team members. So I'm detached from that now. And so I have to figure out how to maintain this relationship at scale because in the last year, we went from 15 to 50 employees. In the last year? Yeah. Oh so God. it's getting really hard logistically to maintain those things. So now I have to think outside of the box. And so I have one of my team members, we don't have a job title for him. Um, he's unofficially the team cheerleader, which <laughs> doesn't sound like the best title, but that's where we're at right now. And so I have him, I said, can you help me rotate one team member every other week and get them on my calendar. And so I I set up a separate link for a separate calendar only for the team blocks. And so that way other people can interrupt it. And there's a guaranteed opening slot every other week for somebody. So I have to figure out how to do this at scale to maintain these personal relationships. Um, I'm trying to think of like some specific examples. Like last week we had one of our freelance developers, he needed a new computer. So he asked our team cheerleader, his name's Jade. So Jade is our team cheerleader. So Jade said, hey, Damon, Sal is wondering um, if we can give him an advance so he can buy a new computer. And I said, tell him yes, send the advance, but don't tell him until after he receives it that he doesn't have to pay us back. Because if I told him, he wouldn't accept it. Right. And that's exactly what happened. So he gets the computer, sends me a picture of it directly to me because he knew be a jade. It was my thing. And it was just this like tears, emojis and gratitude. And he, and he even said, he said, if I would have known, I wouldn't have accepted it. And I wrote him back and I said, I know. (laughs) (laughs) So it's just like things like that. I mean, you know, a big chunk of our team is, you know, stay at home moms, or there's like half of our team that's in different countries. And so I try to be sensitive to not just the human element, but then also cultural differences. So um, like some of our designers are in the Philippines. It's hot as shit over there, like half of the year. And it's super humid. AC really isn't a thing. It's a luxury there. So what do I do? I ask them if they want AC units. Ow. Those team members are never going to leave. So for me, the reward is in, in the, there's definitely a selfish element to it where I just feel good. And that's my main driver is continuing that positivity for myself but then, of course, I know that they're equally grateful. And then the collateral benefit is the loyalty. I mean, Sal even said, he's like, I'm never leaving this company. <laughs> and so, so it's just like a win, 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 win. So just it really boils down to giving without expecting in return. And when you do that, you are rewarded much greater than anything you could have intentionally tried to acquire in giving with a different intention. Well, and it's just like it takes two, I mean, not two seconds. You have 50 employees, of course, right? But just taking that time to meet one-on-one, because I remember when I worked corporate, it was like, 
meeting would get pushed out, personal meetings pushed out, pushed out, pushed out. And I was like, well, I'm clearly not important or I'm not a priority. And that's making me want to not work for you as my boss. So you even Mm -hmm. taking the time or just, you know, you can do those little things. And that's what I mean, me being in the resume writing business and career coaching side of my end is like you deserve to be happy and you should find a boss like yourself who respects you and is has your best interests in mind. Like mm-hmm. I won't get too preachy because I, I do this on other podcasts too. But yeah. No, that's exactly what it is. What you know what's crazy is um the wild cards. I mean, the rewards and the thanks and stuff like that, I think are wild cards enough. But if you want to take it to another level, I've been asked to be a godfather twice from team members. And then I've been invited to weddings in the Philippines. Um, so the the wedding story is funny because it was when my wife was in her third trimester with our daughter. And so I, I said, I would love to go, but I just don't feel comfortable leaving my wife halfway across the world while she's going to be doing the next couple weeks. Right. So they ended up getting a life-size cardboard cutout of me. <laughs> and not only is that like amazing in itself, but we call him Cardboard Damon. And Cardboard Damon is still alive today. Cardboard Damon <laughs> is in their wedding pictures. Stop it. Oh, you have to send these to me after. <laughs> so, so it's super funny, right? But then if you stop and look at the amount of personal emotions involved to make that gesture, like that's something that you can't replicate or buy. So they send me pictures every couple months um, of Cardboard Damon playing guitar. Recently, he's been gardening. <laughs> Good for him. He's he's getting out and after it. Yeah. I just love like spend money on a cardboard cutout of you. So you are there. That's amazing. That's funny. So I'm 5'11", and the parties in the wedding are like 5'4". <laughs> so so I'm just towering over, over everybody. <laughs> That's amazing. That's so funny. Yeah, that definitely speaks volumes. Now, speaking of which, and your wife, obviously, good decision to not um, leave her in her third trimester. So good one on that. But yeah. how do you balance all of this? Because I, I see you posting on LinkedIn that you're we, I feel like we're very much in the same. I resonated with one of your posts. You're like, I can't sit still. Like I have to be doing something all the time or, okay, yes, I'm at my lake house, but I'm fixing something or I'm doing something and I, I'm the same way. But Mm -hmm. how do you balance the two? Uh, I, I set time blocks Mm -hmm. back to the same thing of being intentional. So for the listeners, the lake thing is, um, I had to run up to our cabin. We have a lakefront cabin and I just, wanted like half a day to myself and just kind of like get some isolation. Mm-hmm. And so I went up to our lake house and just, I, I had to go turn on the sprinklers and stuff. Like this was just like a month ago. So I had to go turn on the sprinklers and get things like that ready. So I was like, well, why don't I just go get my space and, and do that while I'm at it? Well, it's like a two and a half hour drive there and then two and a half hours back. So if I'm driving, I'm going to make the most of it. I'm not going to drive up there, fix the sprinklers for 30 minutes and drive back. <laughs> so I'm like, well, shit, what am I going to do? Well, I'm not going to bring my laptop because that's not why I'm coming here. I just want some downtime, but I can't not do something productive. It would drive me insane to sit and watch TV. Like I'll watch it with my kids because that's time with my kids. Like if they want to watch a movie, I'll watch a movie with them. Me on my own, I will never watch a movie. I do watch documentaries in the morning. Like if I have a rowing machine, I hooked up a tablet on our rower and I'll watch documentaries. Other than that, I don't watch TV. And so I'm sitting there like, okay, I'm at the lake house. I got hours to kill. What am I going to do? Well, I needed to finish building the kid's treehouse that I, I built the floor for it last year. 
And so I wanted to put up some little walls and, and things like that. And so for the next couple hours, I was sawing wood and nailing it into the tree and staining it afterwards. So how I balance my time is there's a great post I wrote about this. So if you Google Damon Burton Forbes, it's titled Constant Connectivity Does Not Equal Productivity. Basically what it says is I don't have email on my phone. I don't have messenger on my phone. Even the email on my computer is not set to auto send and receive. I only get my emails when I want to get my emails and push the button. So I set out time blocks. So in the morning is me time. I'm not a morning person, but by process of elimination, like my kids, I, you, you either get in your extra time in the morning or in the evening. My kids will often be open late or up late. They will never be up early. So by default, I get up at five and then that's my time to work out or get a head start on a project. And then come 7.30 to 8.30, somewhere around there, depending on whether they're in school or they're out for summer, the kids wake up. So I put a time block on my calendar from 7.30 to 9.30 that you can't get on my calendar because that way it's flexible depending on what time my kids wake up. Now, when they're in school, it's a little more precise. It's like 8 to 8.45 because then they usually wake up at 8 and I can spend a half hour with them before we walk into school. And, and that's the thing. Like if it's sunny, I like to walk into school. So I do the same thing at the end of the day. I have a time block from three to four. So if it's sunny, I can walk up and pick them up or I have the flexibility to drive and get them. Now, my wife likes to do that too. But if she's busy or just wants a break, then whether I go or not, no one else can take that time. So it's up to me to decide what I want to do with that time. Um, and then after five, I usually try to be really committed to just stopping at five. It's usually more like 530. It's like, okay, Damon, it's 455, stop. And then Next thing you know, it's 5.30. But then I don't give clients my cell phone number. I put it in the contract. So here's a great tip for business owners. Um, I find multiple ways to say the same thing to new clients. So because we all learn differently and we all interpret things or digest or things click at different times. So when we talk on our lead calls, I tell them, you will not get my cell phone number. You will not call us after hours. You will not call us on the weekends. Good luck trying even if you do it because the auto attendant doesn't let you through. So we set blocks on auto attendance. But then it's in the contract too. So in the contract, I literally have two pages. One says, we made this text really big for a reason. Read it. And what it says, <laughs> right? I'm dead serious. The whole contract's like 12 point font. That line's like 50. And so right below that, it says those things we talked about. You're hiring an agency, not an employee. You're hiring us to trust our judgment. So trust our judgment. Don't micromanage us. So I have them initial that page. There's 10 pages or whatever. They sign the last one with the billing information. But this one, they also have to initial. Now, the, the other page next to it says reasons not to hire us. And it says all the things that I just talked about, but in different ways. So they sign that in the contract. After they sign, we send them a welcome kit. And the welcome kit, it says, yay, things are going to be exciting. Here's a copy of my book. By the way, if you didn't read it, Here's all the reasons not to hire us. And here's all the things that we're not going to do. And so what happens is it sets expectations. So your level of communication, if you don't want to give out your cell phone or if somebody asks you for it later, then you're like, how do I say no? It's not weird unless you make it weird. So if you tell them in advance, it's not weird. But then it also increases their trust because they're like, holy shit, these guys have boundaries. I just had a client last week where I went to lunch with them. And in the email before, he's like, hey, are we still meeting up? 
by the way, I don't think I have your phone number. And so I called him from the office number. So he had it, the office number. And I said, yeah, I'm on the way. And then we get there and then he opens up his cell phone number. He's like, what number is this? And I said, it's my office number. And by then he, he could pick up on the vibes, right? He wasn't getting my cell phone number. So he just brought it up. He says, you know what? I actually really respect that you won't give me your cell phone number because if you did, I'm going to use it. Right. So if you set those boundaries, it's better for you and it earns respect from them. I honestly will probably steal. I'll credit you for sure. But it's true because <laughs> we've had people call us even. We have a business line. We have an auto attendant and everything. But I've had people blow up my LinkedIn on the weekends or just, why aren't you answering me? Blah, blah, blah. That happens once in a while. But setting that expectation or, oh, I'm on the go. I have to take a consultation from my car. So I use my cell phone. But mm -hmm. making the effort of making sure my office line's connected because we have mm -hmm. the technology to do that now. Mm -hmm. But that's genius. I like that. If you go search my posts, I've posted a screenshot of those contracts. So if you go look on LinkedIn, you'll find all the herbage that I use. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's incredible. Were you always this way? Or I'm guessing, of course, like being a solopreneur at the time, you have to build and get to setting boundaries. But mm -hmm. what came to that boundary set or what kind of happened to you that you said, I need to set these boundaries and do it that way? There was two moments. Um, so one was before I was self-employed and then one was in, in the first two or three years of being self-employed. So one was one of those former employers, hyper successful. Um, he would do two to $3 million a month and I was his only full-time employee and he had one part-time secretary and that was it. You know, from that guy, I learned a lot of how not to do things in respect to, you know, like one example was there was like a Christmas bonus that was due and it was incentivized based on performance. Like if we hit these certain numbers, things like that. Well, he didn't pay it. And the other person on our team said something. Next thing I know, he comes walking into my office and he threw like 400 bucks cash on my table and mumbled under his breath as he walked out and said, there's your bonus. Like, you know, really demeaning. And similar thing when we were at like a Christmas party, it was supposed to be a team party. But by then it was a couple years into the business and we had three or four more people on the team by then. He's like, hey, we're going to go to this club. I got us a VIP table. And we go to this, this place. And what was really happening is him and his friends had a VIP table. And then he was hanging out with them for the night. And he's like, let's meet up at our room later. And he essentially ditched us. <gasps> and then we, we went and go meet him at his room later. And we knock on the door and we walk in. And my wife and I were, were newly married. And we walk into the hotel room and we walk to the back because there's a bunch of his friends sitting around the couch and the table. And so there's no seats there. So we go to the other side of the room and my wife's like nudging me and I'm like, what? And I look up, she like kind of eyes towards the table and everyone's doing cocaine. <gasps> and so I was like, holy shit. And so then he saw me make eye contact. And so he comes over and he's like, everything cool? Everything's cool, right? I was like, yeah, you guys do your thing. You know, we'll just meet up later. So it was like things like that. So what had happened was that guy was always like, you know, he was that guy to begin with. But then back to your question about when did you set the boundaries is, you know, he had no filter and no sense of individuality within the team. And so I was at dinner with my wife. It was like a Friday, seven o'clock at night. So it's after hours, it's on the weekends. And I don't remember in what order, but between a text, a phone call and an email, I think he called me first and I didn't answer because I was at dinner. And then at the time, I mean, this was like 25 years ago, 20 years ago. And so this is when it was new to have email on your phone. So I don't know if any listeners remember the T-Mobile sidekick. So I had <laughs> yeah. this little flip phone and you could have like black and white and I had email on there and he starts emailing me and then I didn't answer and he starts texting me. And it was right then that I deleted the email app off my phone and I have never put it back on since. 
So that was that was kind of the pre-self-employed. And then that solved the email issue. But where I drew boundaries on the personal phone was two or three years into being self-employed. I had a client, um, you know, when you're first in the business, you're hungry and you got to do what you got to do. And so I had a I had clients had my cell phone number and, and they would call here and there. But I had this one guy and he would call obsessively. It wasn't even obsessively. It was just like unnecessarily. It was over small things, things that could totally wait, things that weren't pressing. And what happens is if you let them call after hours and they get away with it, then they're going to start calling slightly later. Then they're going to start calling on the weekends. And it just pushes and pushes and pushes. And so over time, this guy kept pushing the boundaries of when and how often he would call. So at that point is when I set up an office number and I politely in one way or another asked him if he could just stop calling my cell phone number and start calling on the office line. And at that point, I just stopped giving out my cell phone number entirely. That's so smart. I think a lot of people get in their own head, like, if I don't answer this right away, it's bad or I need to solve this problem or put this fire out. Like if someone's going to complain, I'm thinking on the client being upset phase. I need to solve this right now, right away. I don't care if it's 9 p.m., 10 p.m. I need to do this now. But what's the difference if you wait till whatever, 7 a.m. the next day? It's still going to be there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, actually, even today, just probably an hour before we, you and I jumped on record, um, I had an email from an existing client, but they hired a new manager. So we have like a new point of contact. So they haven't been exposed to these boundaries. And she sent me an email. Um, so as of the time we're recording this, it's a Wednesday. So she sent me an email on a Monday night after hours, and I only check my emails once a day. So being late on Monday, I didn't check them. Tuesday, I just kind of was busy, and so I skipped it. So I checked it early this morning. She had already followed up. So I wrote her back, and I said, you know, a day and a half, I get. You know, I don't think she's really pushing the boundaries, but I will set expectations at the earliest opportunities. So I wrote her back, and I said, thanks for the follow-up. I don't have email on my phone. Here's the rules of engagement. And then I send her to that link that I published the constant connectivity. So I reinforce them constantly. You have to. And especially like with someone new or like you said, once it happens once, it's going to keep reoccurring, keep happening again. But Mm -hmm. okay. I want to break down because crazy enough, a lot of people don't understand SEO don't understand what is a content marketing strategy. What are all these big words? What do these things mean? Mm-hmm. And I'm sure you could talk about this for hours. And yes, we'll reference your book for people to read the whole scope of it. But in a nutshell, why do businesses need to focus on SEO and not the whole, like what, what did someone tell me the other day? They're like, I don't need to do this. I get free leads anyways, like free generated from my sales team. Why do I need to care about SEO? Yeah. So the first thing I'll say is there's no right or wrong method to marketing. Like a lot of marketers will throw rocks at other forms of marketing and and I don't. Like if it's working, it's working. And so you can layer these strategies. So now where I'll tell you the advantages and disadvantages of SEO, let's define it first. So SEO stands for search engine optimization. The goal is for you to show up higher on search engines for words that you can monetize, but without paying for ads. Now, the way that works is by increasing the credibility of your website. So what's interesting is, you know, we don't have to throw rocks at other forms of marketing because if they work, keep doing them. If you put a dollar and get $2 out, why would you not keep doing it? But here's some interesting points, though. If you were to average the full spectrum of traffic, right, you basically have organic search engine traffic, paid search engine traffic, um, organic social media traffic, and paid social media traffic. You know, we're kind of overlooking email and things like that. We're talking about web-based traffic. 
Between those four types of traffic, if you were to just generalize them across all websites, all users, what's crazy, um, I think it's Conductor is the website that did the study. Um, I have a screenshot of it in a presentation I give. But only 2% of traffic is social media from social to a website. Not social and social, but social to a website. And only 6% of traffic is paid. Interesting. 64% is organic. So in between is all those other things, right? So if you look at that and you're crushing it on paid ads, holy crap. Look how much money you're leaving on the table if you also did organic. Mm -hmm. Now, the type of buyer on organic is generally better too because they had intent. So like when you look at paid ads, it's largely interruptive-based marketing. Like you're like, hey, I'm the shiny object at the checkout stand. Look at me. Get your attention. Buy my thing. Move on. But organic, they went to a search engine and they have a pain point or something they need to solve. And so they want to dig. And so then when they find your thing, they are usually a better customer because they're better aligned with whatever their problem is and whatever solution you have. So there's a lot of advantages to SEO. Now, here's the main disadvantage. The main disadvantage is it takes time to build up because you have to, like, there's a lot that goes into it, but I can primarily condense them down into three categories. So category number one is what you do on your website. Is it mobile friendly? Does it load quickly? The second category is content. You can only rank for what Google can read. So do you clearly communicate your products or services to search engines and your customers? And then the last category is external credibility. Do other websites talk about your brand? Is there a buzz about you? Do other websites link to you? So each of those links counts as a vote in the search engine popularity contest. You only need two out of those three to get a return on your investment. But if you have three out of those three categories, that's when you get a monopoly. So most of the visibility is going to come from the latter two. A lot of people are surprised about this. Most of your visibility on Google is going to come from a good content strategy and good external credibility. But that will only be effective if you have a solid foundation. So you have to do the structure first. But once it's done, unless you redesign your site or break something, you focus on the other stuff. So because of that, that's the main disadvantage, right? It takes time. Like when we launch a new account, we have two things launched at the same time. One is our developers go in and go, okay, how do we make things load quicker? How do we make things more efficient? How do we let Google find the content better? While they're doing that, my research team is going, what problems does this audience have? What pain points do they have? How can we solve those? And how do we align those problems with the solutions that the customer offers and then create topics around those? So you're like at least four weeks into this just to figure out what direction you're going in. By the time you finish both of those, you're closer to eight weeks before you start figuring out like how you get your ducks in a row. Just so now that you know what words make you money, then you have to start writing content about it. Content takes time. Then after you write it, you have to distribute it. That takes time. Then after it's distributed, you have to wait for Google to find it. That takes time. After Google finds it, you have to wait for them to figure out what they're going to do with it. That takes time. So that's the reason why it takes time. So there's a lot of truth to people saying, you know, you want to mentally commit to a year before you do SEO. And that's not to say you won't see progress substantially before that. But maybe the last kind of note on this topic is there's a big difference between progress and monetization. So as you are increasing, fixing those inefficiencies on your website or building out your content calendar, you may go from page 10 on Google to page 5, which is a huge jump. But nobody goes past page 1. So that's the difference between progress and monetization. So you, you have to have patience and a cash flow runway to pay for these things to make the progress while you're not quite monetizing it. But then once it gets to page 1, that's where all the traffic is. And then the traffic 
turns into eyeballs, the eyeballs turns into clicks, the clicks turn into sales. So if you can commit to delayed gratification, the profit margin and return on investment is usually substantially higher on organic. That was more insight than I think I've read or learned about in the last five years of this. So dang, just drop the mic on that. I love that. (laughs) So if listeners want to work with you or want to learn more, obviously the book is a great reference, but how do you typically work with clients? My number one requirement is that you're not an asshole. (laughs) Pretty easy, right? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And I'm dead serious about that. So, you know, you you develop a sixth sense after being in business for a while where you can tell if people are going to be high maintenance or not. So once we get past that filter, then usually what I do is I look at those three things, the site structure, the content play, and the credibility. Like how big of a gap is there between you and your competition? How big of a workload is this project going to be? So from there, I just tell them very clearly, like, here's what it's going to be. So we don't do packages. You know, we don't have a sales team. But if we did, I don't want them overselling anybody. I also don't want a lead picking the cheapest package. And then I know we can't deliver on it. So we give very specific quotes based on those three criteria. Um, depending on where that ends up, then I'll, I'll send a formal proposal. And then it, we get earlier, we talked about setting those expectations. So I'm like, here's the rules of engagement. So that's kind of the, the short answer of how we start an engagement. Amazing. And as we continue this and as we wrap up, I'd love to ask guests this, any parting words of wisdom for anyone listening to this podcast? Hmm. Uh. <laughs> I mean, there's there's so many ways we could go on this. I, I, what usually comes to mind is um, like simplicity is the answer. That's in business and I feel like in personal life too. Um, delayed gratification, you know, do things now, get your rewards later. But um, since the audience is probably more on the business side, I would say don't overthink things. And usually where you like success is a game of attrition. It's not that perfection wins, it's who that can hold out the longest and be productive the most consistently that wins. Um, so I would just say start and then don't stop. There you go. You're now a millionaire. Perfect. <laughs> Easy enough. Just do it. Just don't stop. It's fine. You got this, guys. Well, Damon, thank you so much. This has been so much fun. I could talk to you for hours. You have a lot of good insight. But for any listeners that want to follow Damon, read his book, anything, links will be in the show notes. And thank you for listening to another episode of That's Business. If you're looking for a career change and you're not sure where to start, the Resume Rescue can help. Sure, there's no such thing as the perfect fit for everyone, but here at The Resume Rescue, we're on a mission to find the perfect solution for you. Whether it's changing careers, updating a resume, learning LinkedIn, or practicing interviewing, we have you covered. Find us online at theresumerescue.com and find all of our contact info in our show notes.